Hi, welcome to the Love and Serve podcast. I'm your host, Christy, and I am super excited to share with you. This podcast is all about loving where you've come from, loving where you are, and loving where you are going. I am honored to be on the journey of self-love with you together. Let's dive in. When your brain is balanced, your overall daily performance improves. You can have better mood, less procrastination, and less anxiety. Eating healthy, exercise, and proper rest contribute to a healthy brain. But we don't live in a perfect world every day, and some days we need a little extra support. My friends over at GNAPS have solved this problem and created a breakthrough formula that works. And I'm also super happy that it saved me a ton of money. Before, I was buying five different products to get the same results as I get now. But what I love most about it is that they didn't add caffeine and stimulants that cause negative effects. Instead, they used high-quality active vitamins like B12 and folate and one of my favorite brain aminos like 5-HTP that helps me to sleep better and control my appetite. I enjoy drinking my coffee in the morning, and when I take my G-Mood, I don't have the coffee jitters like I normally have. Instead, I'm calm and focused and super productive. So all my friends out there listening, you can get a special discount if you head on over to GNAPS.com. That's G-N-A-P-S-E.com. At checkout, use LOVE20, that's L-O-V-E, 20, and get 20% off plus free shipping and handling on your order. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Leading with Love with Christy. And I am so excited to have our guest on today. Some of you may have heard of him. On He's been, well, all over the globe sharing his new book that I'm so in love with, You're Invited. Oh, my gosh. It, I got through this book so fast. But before we jump into that, I want to share with you that he's a behavioral scientist best known for his work in human connection, trust, and influence. He's the author author of the newly released New York Times bestseller, as I just mentioned, You're Invited, The Art and Science of Cultivating Influence. In it, Levy explores how our ability to impact anything from longevity and business to social causes are a byproduct of our relationships, trust, and sense of belonging. So I am just thrilled to have him on today. He is just a beautiful soul. And I'm so grateful, John, that you chose to be with our listeners. Thank you. Oh, this is an absolute treat. After the beautiful messages you sent me, how could I not want to like find any excuse to hang out with you? So, Aww, uh, so, so listeners, if uh, just to give some background, I got this really heartwarming message on, I believe it was Instagram, uh, from a complete stranger, and it was just such a, a refreshing message that I was like, I have to respond. I have to be in touch with this person. And that's how Christy and I ended up meeting and we've stayed in touch ever since. Well, I was just, I, I always act on my, 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 my heart gut (laughs) and my heart gut. And I listened to an interview that Dave Asprey did with you. And, you know, sometimes when you hear someone speak or you're near them or you're in the room with them, you just know that there's something special there. And the one, that's one thing I've learned to trust within myself was my gut. And when I immediately after I listened to it, I was like, done, I'm finding this man. And I'm just like looking for you, you know, Instagramming. And I'm like, a little, a little, a little. And I was like, who is this guy? This stuff's incredible. This content's amazing. Like everybody needs to know about and you so graciously, you know, were like responding to me. And um, so 
I am so excited to be here. I gifted um, all my top executives with your book, even the CEO of our company. And, uh, you know, I'm running the books around everywhere in Maui just a few weeks ago. And you're, you're, you're invited, you know, is all over, you know, uh, the island of Maui now. Just so. That's awesome. Yeah. So I can't wait people. to visit. Maybe I'll, uh, people actually recognize me. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, totally. Totally. Well, you know, I, uh, was uh, doing some more research and watching some of your like your TED talk this morning again, uh, and I, I'll tell you, I was so blown away by the research that you shared in regards to um, what started all this was mm -hmm. the the you know the the five friends you hang around with, uh, and you know yeah, it's become a bit of a meme kind of right that this idea uh, that it's like the, your life is the average of the five people. You, you spend the most time with it's what's interesting about that is that it's like kind of right and it's like a great shortcut but uh if you, this, the research that really like set off all this was done by these two guys nicholas christakis and james fowler and what they were researching was the obesity epidemic do you remember in like the 2000s everybody was yeah, yeah. and uh they were curious because there's kind of two types of epidemics there's epidemics that spread from person to person, like a cold, right? The flu or something like that, smallpox. And then there's epidemics that are a certain number of people in our society have it, like Alzheimer's. To the best of our knowledge, you don't get Alzheimer's shaking hands with somebody who has Alzheimer's. It's something that you're predisposed to or consume throughout your life or whatever it is. And what they found was really startling, that if you have a friend who's obese, your chances increase by 45%. Your friends who don't know them have a 20% increased chance and their friends have a 5% increased chance. And this kind of effect is true for happiness, marriage and divorce rates, smoking habits, voting habits, just about everything passes from person to person, which means that you have an effect on your friends, friends, friends. Absolutely incredible. I mean, we always say birds of a feather flock together, right? Yes. Like, I, I, I told my kids that when they were growing up, you know, and of course it's just like, you know, went through one year and not the other. Um, but I also found for myself, just through my own personal journey, like my best friends became the books I was reading. Um, because this, they always say this, if you're the smartest person in the room, you're, you're in the wrong room. Right. Mm -hmm. And I found myself because I was leading so many people, helping people to rise. I, I it was hard for me sometimes to find people that I could be in, you know, like, I like teach me I'm hungry. I'm just so hungry to learn. And so I just fell in love with books and would read books and, um, they became my dinner dates, you know, <laughs> every day. And, uh, and I love that you said this because it, I love science. Don't actually go ask my science teachers that because they would have disagreed. Um, I liked, they would have said she liked boys more than she liked science, but, uh, not a bad uh, thing to like in your teenage years, but yeah, not, not a bad thing. It, it didn't get me, you know, that far. Uh, uh, but however, I am sitting here with one of the best behavioral research scientists, uh, on the planet right now. And so that says something. I love the fact that, you know, the people that are listening to this right now, let's just face it. We have, we have friends, we have family, we have family that maybe it's hard to love them when, um, especially during challenging times, because maybe we have opposing views or different views, or we see the world differently and people are projecting their fears into other 
people's lives, right? And yeah. I think it's really important for us to have that conversation and how people can be aware of like, yeah, this is affecting your environment by the people that you're surrounding yourself with, but how can we also be compassionate? Like, instead of just like, you are not on the same frequency as I am, sorry, got to burn this bridge, right? Which is kind of sometimes the um, the American way where we kind of just like, well, if you're not on my level, sorry, we're not going to mm-hmm. play. So how can we bring more consciousness and love to to helping other people to rise um, so that we can all rise together? So this is an interesting question. I think the uh, the first thing we need to realize is that what you just referred to, this idea that somebody else has a opposing view or differing view. Let's look at politics as an example. Researchers had people read a mystery story and then either work with somebody that had the same view of the world as them to solve it or somebody who had an opposing political view and it was made obvious. The groups that actually had the opposing political views solved it faster and more accurately. And that's because human beings are fundamentally anti-fragile. Anti-fragility is this idea that I take a glass and I drop it, it's fragile, it breaks. Something that is robust means that you could hit it very hard and nothing would happen to it, right? Like a bomb shelter. And then there are things that are anti-fragile, things that when you apply pressure to them, they actually get stronger. So when you go exercise, you lift weights, you run, you're putting a lot of pressure on your body. And then in the days that follow, as the body repairs itself, it comes back stronger. Similarly, ideas are like that. Your ability to be an effective leader or come up with a great marketing idea or sales approach won't come from a bunch of people who all have the same view of the world as you, but rather pushing up against that idea with what uh, author Shane Snow calls cognitive friction. This idea that when two ideas push up against each other, you actually end up with like, you know, a knife being sharpened on a stone, it gets sharper. And so the first is just because somebody doesn't have the same view of the world doesn't mean that that view isn't useful, right? There, there was, for a long time, it was popular to say things like positive vibes only, right? And that sounds really limiting because if I'm upset, how am I going to get over it unless I can talk to somebody? So I think one thing is that we need to really see the value of opposing views, Mm -hmm. right? Uh, It lets our ideas become better. The second is understand that opposing views becomes really helpful when you have something called psychological safety. So when you look at the greatest predictor of a team's success, it's not IQ or, you know, tenure or these things. It's psychological safety. The idea that I can express an opposing view without the risk of being kicked out of the group, exiled or punished. And so I can have very differing views. I have friends who are like, like very firmly politically opposed. But there's an immense level of psychological safety, right? I might, like, it's very clear we're friends, and regardless of what they say, I'm not going to stop loving them. (laughs) I might not agree with them, but we actually have a constructive conversation where ideas sharpen one another, and we walk out with a new perspective on things. 
And is that it, is that because you've built trust over the time where maybe they were vulnerable or you were vulnerable and you were able to share maybe differences and they didn't actually leave. They didn't actually, you know, shame you. Oh, uh, is, I think that there's a few things. One is that as a scientist, the basis of everything I do is that I'm probably wrong. Right. Like interesting. I we know that whatever model I create of the universe mm -hmm. is wrong and we're progressively getting closer to one that's accurate. And the faster that we can figure out where we're wrong, the closer we are to being right. And so that's like the, the basics, right? In the sense that now the moment things get really scary is when people claim absolute 100% and positive about stuff because then it's there's no room for having a conversation the other is that shame is an awful way to produce a result like it just doesn't work no great results have really been produced by shaming somebody people don't lose weight when they shame we shame them they don't eat healthier when we shame them they don't change their behavior when we shame them overwhelmingly uh but we keep acting as if we do and so if somebody has an opposing view and i begin by like Oh, you're an idiot. Don't you know X? That's not going to get us anywhere. How, like, why would anybody listen to me? Yeah. And it's, you know, I guess if we were to dig deeper into the, the spiritual consciousness of that too, I mean, for me, of course, this is my world perception that everything also is a mirror reflecting back to me, the things I need to heal and the wounds that I have. Right. So it's, it's, um, I, I think we, I'm also learning, compassion is everything, right? Like there's so much to learn from each other, like understanding where each one of us are in our journey mm -hmm. and respecting that, oh, cool, that's where they're at. You know, whether or not their their main anchor is anger or fear or worry or doubt or shame. I'm, I'm going through the process of recognizing, well, um, I'm trying not to judge it and then put myself somewhere else in a category that's different from them and mm -hmm. saying, oh, well, they're not there yet. You know, cause sometimes I, I recognize like, oh, I don't want, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to see where am I in this relationship with this soul? Am I, am, am I their teacher or am I the student or are we both? And at the same time, I'm still judging it sometimes and I'm recognizing I'm judging it and I'm like, okay, wait, what if I just don't judge it? And what if I'm just here and I'm just really super present in this moment with this human, having this human experience and, and seeing, you know, how our worlds can merge together to create something really beautiful, even if it is different, mm. right? Even if it is different, I want to see, I remember years ago, I wanted to write a book called um, Love is My Religion. And I started this this journey to go into all these different places of worship, like mm -hmm. synagogue and uh, in a Buddhist temple and sitting with the people. And I was like, I just want to see the world from their perceptual worldview before I can judge it. Like I want to sit with the people. And then 9-11 happened and I went into my own fear and I was afraid to go anywhere, mm -hmm. you know, because there was so much fear and division that I, I stopped that. So um, interesting that you say that and, and you talk about shame. So I want to talk a little bit about that because a lot of my listeners are women. Mm -hmm. Lots and lots of them are women who are overachievers 
who are mommies or business owners, and they are working so hard to be the best at everything. And when they don't, and they're comparing themselves on social media to everyone's highlight reel, there's a lot of shaming going on, lots of shaming. So as a scientist, what have you uncovered in regards to the mental health of people today in regards to the land of opportunity that we all live in and how it's affecting us that you bring this up. I've actually been doing quite a lot of reading on a a similar topic. And I saw a TikTok post, which was a woman saying, if you are talking to a woman and she is fit and has a great body and is succeeding at business and her house is clean, and her kids are, are fed and doing great in school and the dog and the cat are taken care of and she's getting an additional degree, then that woman is damn near a nervous breakdown. <laughs> and I thought it was so interesting because when you look at the research, I think you're absolutely right. Not only are women expected these days to look perfect and be fit and be eternally uh, attractive to their partner and uh, have a successful business or career and all that. But then like there are all these standards in parenthood and all this stuff it's, that essentially adds up to doing two full-time jobs. And rarely, especially if it's like a standard heterosexual couple, then the the male partner does significantly less of the family work, like significantly less. Um, the stats are getting better decade after decade, but it's there's still a lot of progress to be made. And what we're seeing is that the rate of burnout is just tremendous. And that's mm-hmm. only getting aggravated. And not only are we seeing women um, comparing themselves to a standard that literally cannot be achieved and that doesn't exist, uh, to a large degree, there's also this kind of like subtle shaming of women who try to have it all. Yeah. And yeah. and it's super interesting. Uh, and one of the best examples I've actually, have you seen the, the, the show, The Morning Show with Jennifer Aniston? And, no. Uh, so she plays like a, a, a morning show host mm-hmm. that really tries to have it all. She has a a kid and husband and great house and an incredible career. And uh, she goes to spend some time with her daughter and her daughter blames her for all these things in her life. And eventually Jennifer Aniston just starts yelling at her and being like, you know what? Screw you. You know, you, everybody tells me that I'm supposed to be an independent woman who has it all, who has a career, who raises a family. And when I do, I get shamed for that. Mm-hmm. There's no winning. And and so I think that there's a, uh, a very clear message that we're seeing that something's got to give. Mm-hmm. And I think it's got to give in a few places. One is in the expectation that people have on themselves, in the partnership that they have with their significant other, if they have one, or their family or their community. Nobody was designed to raise kids by themselves. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we grew up in communities, and that's a much healthier way to raise a family. And then, uh, and then the third is in putting really healthy boundaries on time, right? Like people should have the right to be able to eat dinner with their family and not be on email with their, or feel the obligation 
to be on email and eat 15 minute meals or whatever it is. Uh, so I think that there's a lot to kind of unpack there. Yeah, I think we are just really at the beginning of uh, an opportunity because I always like to see where there's opportunity and there's a lot of suffering in this world right now and a lot of people not connected and, and they're really searching for answers or opportunities to not have to try to keep up with the Instagram stories or the, the you know, the fake stories that are out there. And we crave vulnerability. We crave people's truth, right? Like, yeah. and when my boys were little, I would always say, all right, you know, we're at a restaurant, everyone's phone goes in the middle of the table, like done. Like the rest is about conversation. Tell me about your day. Tell me what's important to you. Tell me what wasn't, didn't work. And we have to be the, 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 we have to be the ones that initiate that as the parents. Right. And even with friends, right? Like whether we're with friends or who we're with, you know, nothing is more offensive when you're with someone and all of a sudden they, they just jump on their phone. Right. And you're like, wait, 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 <laughs> you know, are we here? Are you with me? Can you see yeah. me? But it's a, it's an epidemic in some sense. People are so obsessed with the phone and technology and what they have to do next that they're not really feeling the moment, right? Yeah. I think we've seen a bit of a backlash around that. And I think we were also seeing a new kind of standard social protocol. Like whenever a new technology comes into play, we always, it takes over for a bit and then we put boundaries on it to some degree. And so... It's, uh, I'll say this much. I don't know the last time I was at a meal with people where there was somebody actively on their phone. Now, mind you, I don't have any teenagers. <laughs> so that's like, you know, I might be setting an expectation that's unfair. Um, but I think people have gotten pretty good, at least in, in the social circles I've been around. Uh, but it is incredibly, ins like it, it doesn't feel good when somebody disappears, right? And uh, when you look at the general factors of human behavior, there's this expectation that trust precedes vulnerability. But it actually works the other way. The basic unit of trust is something called the vulnerability loop, which is, let's say the two of us are talking and I signal vulnerability. I say, Christy, you know, I've been working for months on this book and I'm totally burned out. The moment I do that, I've signaled vulnerability. And if you ignore that or make fun of it, trust is going to be reduced, right? I'd feel hurt. If you acknowledge it and then respond with a same level of vulnerability, John, I know how you feel, you know, working with my team during the pandemic has been really tough and making sure that everybody succeeds. I felt a lot of responsibility around that. When I see that, that we're both safe at that same level of vulnerability, trust increases to this higher level. And so there's this, this factor that vulnerability is the basic structure of trust or the basic unit of trust, and that human beings could not survive as a species if we did not have a profound level of trust. Hmm. But we have this perception that I need to seem invulnerable and perfect in everything, which actually distances us, causes people to trust us less, and in the process breaks down the fibers of what actually makes living in a community valuable. Hmm. So uh, my brain is going hundred miles an hour and I, I'm listening to you, but at the same time, neurons are like, Oh my gosh, this is such a great time to be with you and ask you these questions. And 
you know, bring value to the world. But I was, I, I remember a time, a long time ago, I was doing an event in Australia and um, I had this gadget from the HeartMath Institute called the M-Wave. Have you, had you ever heard of the M-Wave? So if it didn't. I don't think uh, I've heard of it. Yeah. So evidently, it, you know, what you do is you hook, at this point, I hooked it up to the ear lobe. Um, I had one of my leaders come on stage and it was able to read their, their heart wave patterns. And so I brought up the leader on stage and put it on her ear lobe and, and had her start imagining something very traumatic and dark in her life. And her coherence started being very jagged and very quick. And then I had her go into a state of something very loving and gratitude and how grateful she is for her life and her loved ones. And all of a sudden her heart waves began to just become very coherent and beautiful. And from, from what I understood is that the more co in a coherent state that we are in, then we are, you know, our reticular activating system doesn't shut off and we're able to solve problems and we're able to show up consciously. So, and we're able to do things in more of an awareness rather than in just, you know, acting like a robot in our life. So how much do you feel like stress is really playing a role in people where people's lives of not being present? Like we're just addicted to everything. We're addicted to our, you know, <laughs> how far we're climbing up the ladder. We're addicted to people's perceptions of us. We're addicted to all these, we have all these addictions. Um, and, and, and it's causing our heart to be out of balance, which is causing our lack of human connection and love. So um, I would argue that we might have the relationship backwards. Okay. Um, so I do want to point out a couple of things. Uh, from what I understand, and this isn't my area of expertise, an addiction is a very specific thing. It's a behavior that you can't control that yeah. fundamentally impacts the quality of your life. So if I'm running so much, I've broken both of my legs and I can't walk anymore, that's an addiction. Okay. Right. Whereas running every day and loving it, that's not an addiction. Right. right? I might feel the yearn to it, but it's not like I can, I still have a functional life. It's not, nobody would be like, that's irrational. Right. right? So I think we need to be a little careful when we label something an addiction because it suggests a negative connotation. There are definitely people who have healthy habits that they take to an extreme, right? Like intermittent fasting when people don't fast for days, like fast for days on a continuous basis right. may not be good. I'm not a medical professional. I'm just saying like, that's a lot of stress on your body. So, so I, I call that, I call that the gift of obsession. There's a difference between addiction and obsession. So we have the gift of obsession, which is, sure. I think, really cool. So now let's actually look at a, a different perspective on this, which is, and I'm not sure I'm right. I'm just saying, let's figure this out together. So in, in my book, I explore this issue that in 1971, uh, two congressmen delivered a report showing that just about 15 to 20% of soldiers at Vietnam were addicted at some point in their time there to heroin. Mm -hmm. yeah. And when the US government discovered this, Nixon declared drugs enemy number one and they started a project to get people clean before they came to the U.S. and brought them home. And they monitored them for years because, you know, the general belief is that once an addict, always an addict. And what they found was startling, uh, that there was no major increase in drug use in the population of veterans versus the general population. And that didn't make any sense until a theory came about 
called dislocation theory that stated that in order for addiction to occur, somebody must be suffering from what they call dislocation, which is a separation from purpose, loved mm. ones, social uh, interaction, integration, all these kind of critical elements. And so that when you feel disconnected, that pain that you experience is so great that drugs don't just make you feel good, they prevent you from feeling bad. So when those soldiers returned home, we suddenly begin to see that, wait, there's no need to use heroin because I get the social fulfillment and love from my social circles again. And so I would say, I'm not sure if it's that we're addicted to rising up the ladder. I would ask the question, is it possible that we have broken down our social ties so much over the past few decades that in the absence of feeling belonging, the next best thing we can feel is progress. That's so good. I love it. And I also am thinking about it culturally too, because my partner, I, I know you got the chance to meet him. He's Argentinian. And that's a different culture than what I've been I've been used oh, yeah. to in the North American culture. And what I find absolutely incredibly amazing about that culture is their love for community and family. Yeah. People will stay with their parents until they're married in like their 30s. Like that's, yeah. like that's a level of belonging that Americans would be like, get out of my house. Totally. Like what? totally. Like my partner and I have had these incredible conversations around like he watches how I am with my boys and like I feel like I'm proud I'm like a really incredible mother <laughs> mm -hmm. I do and um but then I see like how him and his mom get on the phone and talk for an hour a few times a week and the love and the happiness and I'm like wow like I don't compare but I'm like our culture needs to. I'll be honest. This. How could you not compare? Like that's crazy. Like it's the number of boys calling their moms for like you're used to hearing right. that between women and their mothers, right? Right. That's not now. He might be an anomaly, right? Granted, I mean you probably chose him as your partner for very special reasons. Right. Um, but overwhelmingly, we see a different community structure. I have a friend who's Indian who grew up in a community. And she felt like she had 20 mothers. She could go jump in any of their laps and be taken care of and feel loved. And it was incredible for her. She feels like she has 100 brothers and sisters. And so it's, I think, a really, uh, it's really interesting because this contemporary Western structure of family and community isn't really very help, healthy for us. I mean, there's like, it seems to go against a lot of the, the ways that we've developed. And I don't know what the answer is. It just kind of raises some it's, flags. It does. And it is intriguing because like you said, in a, a many of the podcasts I listened to or um, your TED talk, how many friends we all have, right? Like uh, it used to be an average of three and now it's gone down to two. Yeah. And um, I can, you know, when I, when I met my partner, I couldn't believe you know, the Latin community and the friends, there were so many and they were so happy all the time. I'm like, what's wrong here? Like, I'm, I'm not used to everyone being so happy. And 
in love with life and connected and the energy. And it made me a little nervous at first. I was excited because I'm like, I finally found energy that I could relate to in a way. And then it was like, whoa, wait, there's more like, and I've traveled the world, but I think it's a lot different when you begin to live in those worlds and you start to see these communities and how beautiful. And there's also the things that they value in our culture that we don't have. Mm-hmm. or that they don't have right so the the you know the, the danger um, is when the things that they value in our culture that they don't have are kentucky fried chicken and you look at exactly. obesity rates growing in uh you know the middle east because large u.s chains are opening up there or when you see absurd levels of consumption of clothing and goods because yes you know Yes. It's uh, fast fashion comes in. So I, th- I think that there's a, it's really amazing growing up in the idealized country until you see what you maybe are missing out on. And yeah. Yeah. And what we're really, what we've been built to, you know, as you know, we grew up, right. What, what, what we were programmed and conditioned to believe, um, yes. You know, I live my life through television and the movies because I had a really hard life growing up and fathers that were drug addictive and abusive. So the only way I could create a different life was to watch it through the movies. Right. And so, you know, um, the after school programs of seeing, you know, this toy and that toy and, you know, this lifestyle and that lifestyle going. Uh, it was like I, what it told me was I wasn't enough. What I had wasn't enough yeah. and that I needed to I needed to go want more somewhere else. And so I think what's interesting is you're right. Like all these other countries that are idolizing us for the technologies and the consumerism and the, the things that it appears to be ha- that makes us happy. It doesn't actually make us happy. And that's what we're uncovering is that, wow, everything I thought made me happy, actually, truly it was, that wasn't it. Yeah. The, there's this uh, funny relationship between how rich we are as a country I. And I think that happiness isn't a, as important as most people make it out to be. It's like a very American thing to care about happiness. There's other things to care about, like meaning, life satisfaction, fulfillment, people's spiritual connection, right? Like there are a whole other set of ways of being. Happiness mm-hmm. is one of them. I think we are kind of obsessed with it because of our of life liberty and the pursuit of happiness. Right. Like we... We've just grown up in talking about it a lot, but I think that there's there's kind of a whole slew of other things out there that we may want to see where we rank on, because right now, like even our healthcare, maternal mortality, like all these things that the U.S. should be safest place in the country, you know, we have similar maternal mortality to like Kazakhstan, meaning like wow. Borat literally, like wow. you know where he pretends to be from has the same maternal mortality as here, which is insane. Why do you think that is? Why is that, do you think? Uh, There's, I think, two major issues. One is uh, it mostly affects poor communities and women of color. Um, And that's a byproduct of a few factors. One is that uh, women of color are often related to as caretakers. At least this is from what I'm told. I'm, I'm very much not an expert on this topic. And as a byproduct, they push off any of their own issues. So when the child is born and they have like a terrible headache, they don't think, oh, I should go back to the hospital. They assume, okay, let's focus on the baby. 
or doctors don't take women of color as seriously when they're reporting issues as they would mm -hmm. their white counterparts. The other is that the U.S. government, I think partially because of redlining, which is creating districts where uh, people of color were forced to live, essentially. Uh, I think that as a byproduct, they get uh, less care. And yeah. um, and so it, it's, the, it's like an order of magnitude difference risk level if you're white or if you're black. I... I, I, I experienced this firsthand um, years ago. I had wrote a children's book and I just had this, something told me I, I, to go to the poorest school in America. So I went and researched what the poorest school in America was and it was in New York City in the Bronx. Mm -hmm. So I, I jumped on an airplane and, um, you know, walk, went and did my privilege thing and went to a Broadway show. And then, you know, that next day I'm going to go and uh, going to go to the school. 100% of the school is on food stamps. And I, I uh, went to the, the valet and I said, uh, so I need to get to this address. And he looks at the address. He said, nobody's going to take you there. And I said, what do you mean? No one's going to take me there. Like who, who doesn't, I mean, there's gotta be someone. Mm -hmm. And he's like, okay, give me it. I said, I got all these kids I need to talk to. And he's like, okay, give me a minute. So he, he pulls over a taxi driver. This was before uber <laughs> and he and he and he's like he got someone that didn't speak english very well and so as he took me to the school i was greeted at this elementary school with uh, police officers that were checking my purse uh in this elementary school mind you and uh, going through all my stuff and patting me down before i went in and part of what i would do with the kids is i would create dream boards for them because I would tell them about my story and what happened to me when I was little. And I asked the teacher if she could get some crayons and it took about 30 minutes and she came back with a box full of maybe seven crayons that were broken. Mm -hmm. Mind you, I said, this is all you have. She said, that's all we could find in the school. This is an American school. This is here, right here in our own country, in our own backyard. And what I was experiencing when I was witnessing the teachers, it, they, they, they didn't, look like the teachers I grew up having. It looked as though they picked somebody up off the street and planted them in there to be a babysitter for the kids. And the kids wouldn't, they surrounded me and came to me and, you know, begged that I wouldn't leave them and telling me their stories. And I think that was my first experience. Of course, I've worked in shelters, battered shelters and homeless shelters, but this was my first experience to really see the deprivation in our own country and what we're ignoring and it's not okay. Like, like at some point, I think we all have to just wake up. And if we all just gave a little, you know, of course this is an overly utopian idea, right? I think we all have to experience enough of not having enough before we can actually maybe appreciate what somebody else's trauma is and what they're going through. But in our own country, we have some work to do. And so I saw it firsthand, John, I, I, I cried for a long time about that because I felt helpless. Like I didn't know how to help anybody. You know, I didn't know how to make mm -hmm. it better. So how would you propose we start to heal those wounds and those roots here in our own backyard? I think that's a, a really big question with a lot of, where a lot of great intentions will produce a lot of unexpected consequences. And so they're some of the brightest minds in the world, far smarter than me, who try and tackle issues like this. 
And I don't think that there's a clear answer. I think it's kind of like, let's call it the energy crisis, right? That a single solution won't solve everything. You can't just have wind farms. You also need nuclear and you need, you know, maybe things like Niagara Falls that are water-based and so on. It's going to be a complex solution of a lot of different programs. It might be charter schools. It might be public donation to solve certain issues like, uh, there's that website which lets you pick which teachers to support. And there needs to be government intervention and new standards set and programs and restoration and all these other things. So it's, I'm not going to pretend to have the answer. Yeah. Um, I think the people within these communities probably have much better answers than I do because I'm not living this every day. And the yeah. people who are aren't stupid. They're just exhausted and overworked and are trying to do the best with the situation that they have and probably nobody's listening to them. So yeah. my hunch is that the answers to these problems are probably within the community uh, and we have to figure out ways to empower, empower the people in the communities to have a larger voice so that politicians and legislation cares. Yeah, I agree. Um, thank you for that. And something that was you shared in your book that literally just had me I was crying like a baby. <laughs> of course, it doesn't take much to get me to cry was these days. I never Davis used to cry. Yeah. Yeah, he's amazing. That guy's Dude, incredible. Dude, can you, you got to tell our listeners, like, I just, I mean, all day that day after reading that, I, I just wanted, I wanted to just give him a big hug and like bring him tea and, it's a pretty cool story. So why don't you tell them a little bit about it? Because it blew me my, my mind. So I, uh, over the course of, I've been running these kind of dinners and salons for a long time. I was introduced to this man, Daryl Davis. I didn't know what the story was there. And uh, he sat me down and, and told me, uh, Daryl is a black musician who tours around, mostly I think playing boogie and, um, and rock for a while. And when he was a child, his parents were part of the Foreign Service, so he was traveling constantly, went to international schools his entire life. And when he turned eight, he came to the United States, and he was so excited because he was able to join the Cub Scouts. Super excited. Gets his nicely pressed uniform. On this particular day, they're going for a, uh, like a parade or something like that. And people are lined up on the streets and he's in his uniform. He's with his scout buddies. And as they're walking, some kids started throwing bottles and rocks. And uh, one hit him in the head. And suddenly he's like, why don't people like the Cub Scouts? He couldn't make sense of it. And the, the instructors all surrounded him to protect him and got him to safety. And he realized that none of the other kids were being attacked. And... Uh, he didn't really get what was going on. And when he got home, his parents asked what happened to him and he explained, and that's when they explained racism to him. And he didn't, like, couldn't comprehend the idea that somebody would hate him without knowing him. Like, so he thought that they were lying. And in the process, uh, like, it just didn't make any sense until Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated a few months later, and he realized that, oh, this racism thing is a real thing. I ended up going to school and graduating and uh, studying music and 
becoming a musician. And he was still always kind of bugged by this idea of how could people hate him without knowing him. And one day he's performing and he's the only black person in all white band and uh, country was really popular at the time. So if he wanted to keep working, he had to tour the country band. And he ends up uh, going on stage at this place in Maryland called the Silver Dollar something. Uh, and once he gets off of stage, a man puts his arm around him and said, wow, I've never seen anybody play like that besides Jerry Lee Lewis. And uh, I've never seen a black man do that. And Daryl, knowing Jerry Lee, said, oh, Jerry got a style from uh, people who are black. The guy didn't really believe him, but he said, why don't you join me for a drink? And they sit down and chat. And he's there with a few other guys. And he says, oh, this is the first time I've ever had a drink with a black man. Mm-hmm. And uh, Daryl's like, how is that even possible? That's ridiculous. And he drops his head and his friend nudges him and the guy like, well, it's because I'm a member of the Klan. And Daryl thought he was kidding because like, why would a Klan member put his arm around him, invite him for a drink, treat him for one, want to hang out with him? Like none of it made any sense. So he, he passed, the, the man passed Daryl his membership in the Klan. And Daryl looked at it, sobered up right away. Not that he was drinking alcohol, but like just the situation was crazy. Uh, recognized the symbol of the Klan on it, handed it back to him. And it, it, just made no sense. And eventually uh, it occurred to him that this might be an opportunity to actually get an answer to his question. Uh, and every time Daryl would perform in the area, the man would come to see him perform and often bring other clans members. And one day Daryl asked, hey, can you introduce me to the Grand Dragon of the clan in Maryland? Uh, I want to interview him. And he arranged for an introduction and they set up an interview. Nobody thought to ask if Daryl was black because why would, like it just wouldn't make sense. Mm-hmm. The clan didn't think. And uh, Daryl shows up for an interview with a Bible, a recorder, and um, the local chapter head of the clan for all of Maryland shows up with his security guard and they are in shocked when they see, they're just totally yeah. shocked when they see Daryl. And uh, Daryl offers them some sodas that are sitting in some ice. And uh, they, you know, are talking and Daryl's interviewing him. And as they are interviewing, he hears this like weird sound in the background every so often and doesn't think much of it. And tensions are high and everybody's kind of, you know, upset. And suddenly they hear this loud bang in the back. And... Suddenly, Daryl jumps across the table and grabs the Grand Dragon, thinking that he's uh, he's trying to hurt Daryl because of this noise. And the security guard now grabs Daryl because he thinks that he's going trying to hurt uh, the clan member. And in this moment, everybody's freaking out, and suddenly they realize that what they've been hearing this entire time was the ice melting and the soda falling. Mm-hmm. And in that moment, they literally almost killed each other. The security guy was pulling out his gun. Daryl was like attacking the the clans member, and they started just laughing uncontrollably. 
And uh, Daryl began to see something that day, which was really unique. And mm. he kept interviewing and going and meeting with people and clans member after clans member. And he would keep meeting with this one guy from Maryland who tried to continuously blow up a synagogue and attack black youth and so on. And as they would have conversations, it became clear to the Klansmen that they were becoming friends. And then that Klansman realized that it doesn't make sense for him to be in the Klan. Hmm. Become really close with a Klansman, uh, rather a black man. Mm-hmm. And eventually that man ended up giving him his robes. And what's crazy, this man was a police officer in the Maryland system. It was a undercover Klansman acting as a cop, hurting people. Hmm. And because of his relationship with Daryl, he left a life of hate. Hmm. And Daryl kept meeting with people and over the course of the next several decades met with uh, over 200 people that uh, all left the Klan or Hmm. similar white supremacist groups. But what was amazing about it was that Daryl actually had the answer to his question after that first interview, which is that when that ice melted and that noise came, then it triggered fear, fear of the unknown. Mm-hmm. And that fear almost led to the destruction of either the Klansmen or Daryl. And so it wasn't that people hated him despite not knowing him. It was that people hated him because they didn't know him, because he was an unknown element, and that unknown made them scared. And so they acted irrationally. And so Daryl decided that his mission was to get to know people, to show them that through exposure, uh, that maybe their opinions and ideas are not really accurate, and maybe that there's a better way. It's literally one of my most favorite stories, like I've ever heard. Like I, I mean, I could, I know all of us can relate in some way of something that we're judging or someone we're judging or, um, and it, it makes us question our own, you know, um, existence and how we're choosing to show up. And, you know, I'm a big lover. That's why it's called leading with love. Um, and what's, you know, I've had to tell people, I've had to be really careful not to callous my own heart at times Mm. because I've so openly, lovingly like trusted and loved and given permission for people to come in and be vulnerable. And I too was vulnerable. And then, and then the human nature shows up and people fall from grace or they didn't match my expectations for, for what I thought was an integrity or ethical. Yeah. And, and then, um, the patterns, the gifts of those get the gifts of those things happening to all of us, for all of you listeners, when people fall from grace and they fall from our expectations is, is not to callous our heart and just to be more loving for ourselves. Um, and recognizing that our path is our path. And uh, I know for me, I had a really hard time with the, with the masculine for most of my life because every time a man would come in, I watched him beat my mother and beat my sisters or they would leave. And so I always calloused my heart from the masculine, you know? And uh, then, you know, it showed up in different ways like business. You know, I produced a film and, you know, had some in, 
some some co-partners maybe d- that didn't uh, follow through in the highest of integrity that uh, was in alignment with my values. And, you know, I wanted to callous again. And then I just had to keep opening and recognizing that these were all moments for me to, to rise and to show love in a different level um, mm-hmm. the way any great spiritual teacher would have. And that's hard to do, right? Like yeah, when someone's throwing at you or wanting to, you know, uh, and if they're not even doing it to you is when we recognize it has nothing to do with you, right? It has everything to do with them and to just to show more compassion and grace, which is what I love about Daryl. So John, you, um, I always like to ask this question to people that have really, really influenced me um, and inspired me as you have in your work and your research. And, and, and I love what you've overcome to get here too, right? Like, you've had to overcome a lot and you found your way and you're finding your way. And this isn't, this isn't even the beginning or the end. It's you're going to be on so many more mountains, mountaintops, and then valleys. I mean, that's just part of life, right? As we stretch and grow and expand. But if there's any words of wisdom that you could give myself and all the listeners out there from what you've learned in all of your studies and your experience with humans and studying behavior um, what was the one piece of wisdom you would share with all of us that could, um, I think there's us? two. One is that we don't make any sense. So stop trying to make sense of us. Like why people do stuff. Like you're never going to understand that. You might understand it at the scale of 10,000 people, but not on the scale of the individual. Uh, so that's one. And then the second is that really people are lonelier than ever right now. So call somebody up. Invite them to hang out, spend quality time with them, do something that causes you to have a shared experience, because that's going to have a much bigger impact on the quality of your life than going and seeing a movie or whatever it is. Uh, Yeah, we need people and we can't pretend that we don't. Mm -hmm. Well, last night you... Your book had inspired me so much. We had a, a gathering Ooh, here. Fun. Yeah, we had this guy come in and he uh, does pottery art. So we all came together, uh, a bunch of uh, light workers, and came together and did pottery together. It was really amazing, all inspired That's by you. So cool. Uh, I love it. Super cool. I love super it. Cool. Super That's cool. So, so I want to thank you for your time today. How can people find you, your book, your wisdom? Can you share with us? Sure. Uh, you can use Google or Bing. I'm, I'm kidding. Uh, you can... Uh, <laughs> Tinder. Yeah, t- you're married. No, no, I'm, I'm very, very happily married. Uh, the, uh, you can find me. Uh, I'm super easy. John Levy, TLB, J-O-N-L-E-V-Y. T like Thomas, L like Brian, B like boy. Uh, John Levy, TLB. I'm on... That's my website. That's Twitter. That's Instagram. That's a- anything. Uh, <laughs> And, uh, but not Tinder. And, uh, <laughs> uh, and then I, yeah, feel free to reach out. I'm super easy to get a hold of. You can put in some contact requests on, on the site. I'll, I'll get back to almost everybody. So cool. feel free to reach out. Oh, we, we appreciate your time today. Thank you, John. Um, continue to do your, 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 your amazing, uh, heart work in the world. We, we love listening to you and watching your work. So well, until we meet again, have a beautiful Absolutely. day. You too. Okay. Bye, bye John.
Imagine the feeling of seeing your dreams manifest in front of your very eyes. Through the power of the law of attraction and intentional daily visualization, your dream life can be made into reality. Visualized video is a powerful tool to take your vision board to the next level. See your life play out in front of you like a movie trailer. Increase the intensity of your meditation or amplify the vibration of your visualization with visualized video, a tool to use in your daily routine to help you create the life of your dreams. Let us help you manifest more. With our incredibly insightful questionnaire, we will give you a unique video with affirmations to make your dreams a reality. Get your own visualized video today and start manifesting all your desires now. Go to visualizevideo.com. That's visual, V-I-S-U-A-L-E-Y-E-S video.com and use the code LOVE20, that's L-O-V-E-2-0 for 20% off. Thank you so much for listening to Love and Serve Podcasts. It is my sincere hope that the rest of your day is filled with abundance, love, and light. Know that I believe in you and know that when you shine your light, you unconsciously give other people permission to do the same. You are making an impact. I can't wait to see you on the next episode of Love and Serve. For more information, you can go to thelovegypsy.com and follow us at Christy Dryling Beauty on Instagram.